Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It is great to have all of you, every single last one of you. Yes, you. It's great to have you back here on this episode. I hope you enjoyed the previous episode. That was, uh, it was a great letter from Dr. Franklin. I'm glad he took the time to sit down and write that thing. And I'm glad that we were able to still have a copy of it that survived so that we can learn about what really happened in the lead up to the war in 1775. Because, you know, Dr. Franklin was not the first person on this podcast to suggest that the king and the parliament had been planning to start a war or instigate a rebellion in the colonies for the purposes of executing some kind of a military operation, offensive military operations. We'd heard it before. If you go back in the episodes, you'll hear it. Multiple sources, you know, it is what it is. People can try to refute that. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there trying to spread all kinds of disinformation about what caused the uh, revolution in the United States and the people behind it and what they were contending with. But, you know, it's just reality. And I do get passionate about it. Like on the previous episode, so- somebody I know had said to me, you know, you're awful angry about this stuff. And I, and I said to him, I was like, I don't think I'm angry. I think I'm passionate. I get worked up about it, but I'm just, I'm passionate about the history. I'm passionate about what happened because it's a, it's a true story of a government effectively declaring war on its uh, people and this is not this is not to be taken lightly so if anybody wonders why i was so animated on the previous episode that's why i just take it seriously that's all i don't know if any i don't know if it's off putting to anybody somebody had mentioned it to me and it, they had mentioned it to me before too by the way so many episodes ago they're like you know i mean they were i think they suggested something to the effect that i maybe dial it back a little bit it might be off putting to people i don't give a crap i mean it's uh, part of the um, part of doing this podcast is reading some some very disturbing material and if I get worked up, I'm, I'm going to share with you all exa- my reactions to it, how I get worked up about it. And I can read these letters multiple times and still get worked up about it because it just it hits me every time. True stories, you know? So on this episode, I was actually planning something different for this episode, by the way. I was planning to talk about something because I was listening to an interview that somebody was doing. Very intelligent guy, by all accounts. And he was talking about, let's see, what were his exact words? A quote-unquote new misery that exists in the United States of America. A new misery. And there was a larger discussion around it. And I had tried to address this once before by suggesting that connecting with history will help us overcome some of this stuff. And I think there's a, I think there's a, a little bit of a bigger conversation to be had about that. And I had talked a little bit about it in a previous episode. And I think I'm going to do an episode on it again. It's basically about the the change over time, or the lack thereof in some cases, between the generations in the United States and the different perspectives that we have. You might get very different groups of people listening to this podcast with very different perspectives, depending on when you were born, how you handle this modern world that we live in. And I want to talk about that, so and it's going to be probably a, a really a difficult episode for some people to listen to. But again, it, it some things just have to be discussed, I think. And if I can contribute at all to trying to rescue anybody from the new misery, such as it is, especially the younger folks out there who may be listening to the podcast, those folks between the ages of 15 and 25, then certainly I'm going to try. So 
probably not the next episode, but the one after that is going to be the episode where I talk about that. I've already I've already basically recorded it. I may modify it slightly, but I'm going to fire that up and and I'm going to I'm going to talk about groups of people and and not in a harsh way, I don't think, but I'm going to be very direct about it. And just understand when I talk about groups of people, like, for example, when I talk about the United States of America, I'm talking about it in the aggregate. When I talk about any other kinds of groups of people in this country, I'm talking about it in the aggregate. Like, for example, the public school system. You you folks know that I am not particularly happy with the history departments in the public school system. Not so much because the history department is a problem, but because the school administration doesn't take the history department seriously, and neither do the parents. And again, that's another group, the parents. I talk about them as in, in the aggregate. Now, I understand everybody's an individual. I'm just talking about the broad group in such a way that, you know, I'm talking about, you know, how most people function. Like, for example, are there a few good public schools out there that really handle the history department? Well, probably. But there's a whole bunch that don't. So that's that's why I talk about it the way that I do. Most do not. Uh, are, are some parents out there teaching their kids about history the way that they should? Yes. Are most of them? Absolutely not. And I know that every time I see a man on the street interview. You ever see one of those where somebody goes out on the street and starts asking questions of random people who walk by? Like, name the three branches of government. Who's the vice president of the United States? Who's the secretary of defense? When was the United States founded? When was the Declaration of Independence signed, ratified, so to speak, through the Continental Congress? And people can't answer these questions. I mean, some people can, but most people cannot. When I watch these man-on-the-streets interviews. Now, some of these may be curated. They may be cherry-picking the worst of the worst and showing those because it's funny to watch. On the one hand, it's also sad. But you get the idea. Uh, Clearly, there is a problem with the education system in this country and the, the parents who raise children in this country not actually meeting their responsibilities. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Some parents do a great job. Most parents don't as far as teaching history. And I know that because I grew up in this country. I know what I'm talking about. But anyway, so in that in that particular episode, which is probably going to be about two episodes from now, this will be episode 85. The next one will be 86. So probably episode 87 is where you're going to hear this commentary. Just keep that in the back of your mind. You know, don't take don't take it personally. I'm talking about the groups. And if you take personal offense to it, then you're probably not paying very close attention to what I'm describing. And I'm going to take a shot at my at some groups that I'm a part of. Like, for example, my generation, the millennial generation. I'm going to take some shots at the millennial generation. I don't particularly like the millennial generation, to be honest with you. I don't like it. Oh my gosh, Roman, does that mean you don't like the, the people that you grew up with? Does that mean you don't like your friends? Does that mean you don't like it? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this monolithic thing that we call the, the, the millennial generation. To the extent it is a monolithic group of people, it's not. Like I said, everybody's an individual. But I, I try to be as dissimilar from those people as I possibly can. You know, this, this monolithic generation, I try to be as different from the millennial generation as I possibly can. Because I don't like it. I don't like the rules of that generation. I don't like the attitude. I don't like the conduct of this generation. I can't stand it, to be honest with you. And I mentioned that before in a previous episode. But those are the kinds of things I'm going to talk about, but in, in, a, in a particular direction. It's all going somewhere. It's not just going to be random me, you know, sniping at the uh, millennial generation. That's not what it's going to be. Just FYI. And I, I had to put that. I'll put a disclaimer on that episode, too. So if anybody rolls into that episode new, that's what you're going to hear. But anyway, without further ado, I'll get into this episode here. We're already probably about six, seven minutes into this episode. I'll, um... I'll end that uh, disclaimer about the forthcoming episode on millennials and whatever else it is I feel like I want to talk about in that regard. And like I said, all of it is trying to address this problem that societal commentators think that we have. 
trying to get to that problem a little bit and connect it with, again, with, with history and the Founding Fathers in some particular kind of way, more specifically the study of the Founding Fathers. So on this episode, I really just want to revisit. I was very rushed in the previous episode, by the way. That episode was going very, very long. And I was rushed to try to fit everything in because it was a lengthy letter and there was a lot in it. So I'm just going to revisit a few items. I got a list and I'm just going to hit them one at a time. And the first thing I want to mention, I, I, I did a, I did kind of a lead into this and then I, I, I hit the quote and then I didn't dwell on it very much. And it was that quote by Samuel Adams that I read. And there's one portion of this I want to read because somebody I know had brought this up to me. And I want to address it, because if somebody I know brought it up to me, chances are there's somebody in this audience who's also thinking the same thing, perhaps, maybe, I don't know, we'll see. I'll address it anyway. So I had mentioned that Samuel Adams was going to talk about this same thing that I reference sometimes when I talk about the Founding Fathers and other things too, like World War One. Somebody I know thought I was being a little bit too blunt, maybe, or a little bit too harsh by talking about, or maybe inappropriate, by talking about the piles of bodies and rivers of blood that bought freedom for this country, or in the case of World War One, the piles of bodies and rivers of blood that were just simply wasted for no reason other than a bunch of politicians in this country were bored on a Friday afternoon and decided to declare war on Germany for literally no reason at all. And I make the case for that in that episode. If you, if you take issue with me saying that, go back and listen to that episode so you can hear that whole context. Uh, but more specifically, my agitation about the last day of World War I and how that was handled. And how many people died on the last day of World War I? And it was completely useless. They, they threw those lives away like they were, like they were just garbage. But I, I talk about the piles of bodies and rivers of blood, you know, and some people might think, you know, oh, Roman, you're being too harsh. You, oh, this is inappropriate. You shouldn't talk about that on this podcast. You're just trying to be dramatic. It's, you're trying to, you're trying to be, uh, contentious or something of that nature. Oh, just, uh, just pipe down, Roman. Stop talking about that crap. We don't need to hear it. Okay. Well, Samuel Adams uses the same language. And I, like I said, on the, on the previous episode, I read it, but I didn't dwell on it at all. And I wanted to, because this is some, this sticks in my craw. This sticks in my craw something fierce when people complain about me talking like this. And I'll read you the quote again. This is from the middle of that long quote that I read from Samuel Adams. I'm not going to read the whole thing. If you want to hear the whole thing, tune into the previous episode. It's a good one. Uh, you, you probably won't be disappointed by the previous episode. Unless TLDR is your thing. But here it goes. Quote, Contemplate the mangled bodies of our countrymen, and then say, What should be the reward of such sacrifice? End quote. The mangled bodies. Do you ever do that? Do you ever contemplate the mangled bodies of our countrymen? I do. Not because I enjoy it. But, you know, I have forced myself over the years to look at pictures and video of some pretty horrible things from wartime. Now, why do I do that? Is it because I enjoy looking at those things? No. It disturbs me, you know, and sometimes, you know, when I'm trying to go to sleep at night, uh, it revisits me. Why do I do this to myself? Now, some people do get thrills out of putting those kinds of images in their head. Like, there's some horror movies that get made in this country that are just disgusting. And people really get cheap thrills out of seeing, you know, mangled bodies and all the rest of it. Or, you know, imitations thereof. Very realistic with modern horror movies. They actually get cheap thrills out of looking at that stuff. And I don't know if it's some kind of a fetish thing or if it appeals to their lust in some particular kind of way, but it's disturbing that people do that. I, I'm not that kind of guy. I don't watch those movies, and there's a reason for it. I don't like to see it. So the reason why I look at, you know, some of the terrible pictures and video from history is because it's real. It really happened. And for me to be able to appreciate the sacrifices that were made for this country, I have to have some idea, not a complete idea, not a 100% clear picture, but some idea as to what it was that really happened 
to some of these folks. And then I realized just how high a price was paid for this country. And Sam Adams is asking you to do the same. Oh my gosh, Roman, how dare you? How dare you say that Samuel Adams is asking us to do the thing, you sick, twisted moron. You have no idea what you're talking about. That's not what Sam Adams was saying. Oh, really? Quote, contemplate the mangled bodies of our countrymen, end quote. Contemplate. He says contemplate. That means think about it. Generate a picture in your head. He's asking you to do it. He's telling you, yes, you, on the other side of this, on the other side of this podcast. Now you can ignore him if you want to, and, I, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna yell at you for doing it. I'm just saying when I when I say these things, this is where I'm getting this from. I don't make this stuff up. I'm not as smart as Samuel Adams. I said it before. I wish I was. I'm just a messenger. Samuel Adams is the one who's telling you to do it, not me. Now this guy again, father of the American Revolution, the guy I refer to as the big guns of the American Revolution. I think he's onto something here. I think there's a reason why he's asking you, yes, you, to do this. He seems to think it's valuable to understand. And so we should try to understand. This is the value of listening to the Founding Fathers. Samuel Adams is going to have a lot of advice for us, by the way, as this podcast goes on, as is, of course, John Adams. And we've heard a lot of advice from Dr. Franklin and George Washington already. We haven't gotten to Samuel Adams yet, really. This is really the first long-form quote, I believe, I have said from Samuel Adams. I've I've repeated from Samuel Adams, that is. But keep in mind again what uh, what John Adams said. The, the true history of, I'm paraphrasing again, the, the true history of the revolution cannot be written without the character of Samuel Adams. And by gosh, we're going to talk about it. Not on this episode so much, but I just wanted to revisit that because somebody had brought it up to me and I wanted to make sure to address it because I know most of the people who listen to this podcast, they don't reach out with comments and questions and thoughts and all the rest of it. So I have to kind of infer from some of the things I hear from others, what what might be some questions out there? What might be some of the concerns? What might be off-putting about this podcast? What might cause people to rebel at the notion of listening to these messages, such as we do? Could be that. Could be, could be somebody thinks I'm harsh, that I'm inappropriately bringing up the mangled bodies of our countrymen and so on and so forth. But again, I'm just carrying on from the example of Samuel Adams. I just wanted to make sure that that was clear, why it was exactly that he was telling you to do that. Now, of course, I want to get back to just a few other things that I talked about in that letter that I didn't dwell on quite so much as I should have, probably. But again, we were short on time. So he was talking about how empires crumble uh, over time. And then he, he said this, quote, I then took occasion to remark to him that in former cases, great empires had crumbled first at their extremities from this cause that countries remote from the seat and eye of government, which therefore could not well understand their affairs for want of full and true information, had never been well governed, but had been oppressed by bad governors, on presumption that complaint was difficult to be made and supported against them at such a distance, end quote. I did talk a little bit about this. I used the example of, like, say, Alaska. Should Alaska be governed from Washington, D.C.? Absolutely not. Washington, D.C. knows about as much about Alaska as a caveman understands about traveling to the moon. So no, they, they shouldn't be shouldn't be governing Alaska. Leave that to Alaska. They know how to govern themselves, believe it or not. I mean, kind of. I've got some complaints about Alaska. They're, they're kind of an odd character in some respects, and sometimes I, I think they engage in a little bit of self-destruction. But other than that, I perfectly just let, it, let them do it then. I don't care. I mean, if they want to engage in self-destruction, that's their right to do. But aside from that, you know, Alaska should govern itself. So what, what are we, how do we apply this to a modern context? And besides that, besides the obvious, it says countries remote from the seat 
an eye of government. You know, you could you could say, you know, countries, we, we could say states, right? So we could, we could change the words from, quote, from this cause that countries remote from the seat and eye of government, which therefore could not well understand their affairs, end quote. We could change that, you know, to, to states, as in the 50 United States. Now, why would we? Is it, is it the same thing? Or am I way off base here? Oh, Roman, you don't know what you're talking about. The states are not the same as countries, and the seat and eye of government, they were talking about distant countries, or they were talking about provinces, Roman Empire, and British Empire, and all the rest of it. Okay. This is one country, Roman. Uh-huh. Uh, it's one country, and um, this is a uh, very different situation here. Uh-huh. Okay. Thank you for that, by the way. Um, disgruntled podcast critic. Thank you for your input. Let me revisit the Declaration of Independence for just a moment. Our good old friend, the Declaration of Independence, and, and keep in mind again, honestly, these letters from our Founding Fathers, they're not just the instruction manual to the Constitution. They're also the instruction manual to the Declaration of Independence. And you put the two together, and all of a sudden, the, uh, the clouds in the sky part, the sunshine starts shining on your face... A light bulb goes off, an epiphany begins to form, and suddenly we understand the true meaning of things. So let me read to you the relatively the, close to the end of the Declaration of Independence here. Quote, We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of a right to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, end quote. What's so important about that? What, what, what am I What's the connection between that and these the, the extremities, the distant countries and all the rest of it, and how they're governed and all that? I've pointed this out before, but there, there may be some new folks in on the podcast who either didn't catch it, or maybe they haven't listened to that episode yet, so I'll hit it again. Why not? It's always good to go back every once in a while and talk about this. It says here, quote, that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, end quote. Free and independent states, plural. Not a free and independent state. Because, and, and some people might think, well, the United States of America, uh, it came later, Roman. Right? At this point in time, it was just the colonies, and they were independent, and blah, 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 blah. Uh-uh. Not, no. That's not, that's not what's going on here. Let me read it to you again. Quote, We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, end quote, and then continuing on, quote, that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, end quote. The United States of America is there. It didn't come later. It's here. So what's up with this free and independent states? Why isn't it just one free and independent state, singular? Why is it many free and independent states, plural? Are the United States of America, the several states, I should say, are the United States of America intended to be free and independent states? Answer, yes, they are. And I'm not the, mo I'm not the only person in recent memory to have said this. There's actually a president who, uh, who said it better than I ever could have. And maybe I'll bring that quote on this podcast. I don't, I don't think it'll be partisan, because really all he was talking about is the intentions of the Founding Fathers. I try not to mention names of politicians that have lived in recent memory, but in, in this case I might make an exception, because this is, a number one, this is a quote that's not known by almost anybody. Almost nobody has ever heard this before. You, you have to go digging pretty deep to find it, uh, if, you're, if you're looking for it. But he would agree with me. More specifically, I would agree with him. And he agreed with the Founding Fathers. These are several independent states. This isn't just one independent state singular. So what's this got to do with Dr. Franklin and what he was talking about? And what was going on with Parliament back in 1775? We're talking about empires having crumbled in their extremities, he says. 
You know, countries remote from the seat and eye of government, which therefore could not well understand their affairs for want and full of true information, so on and so forth. This country, unfortunately, it, by and large, is governed in so many different kinds of ways on what I would actually call the extremities. Uh, that would be the two coasts of the United States, the, the uh, East Coast and the West Coast. I mean, you've got the cultural center of the country, unfortunately, which, which would be, you know, Hollywood, that, that area there. Uh, probably an incredibly disgusting place, I mean, if ever there was one. And, and I say that with—I wouldn't have said that two years ago, by the way. There's something—there's a phenomenon that's beginning to transpire around that—not that, just there, but also the other locusts of control around the United States where people— of wealth and consequence, kinda, depending on how you describe that. Um, people who are, are are relatively, they get a lot of attention. These people are up to something, you know, some of them. And it's very interesting what they're doing, and it's it takes it to another level. Hollywood has always been not necessarily a den of ill repute, but a problematic place for any number of really good reasons. But I, I would never have referred to it as a, as a very disgusting place until recently. And I'll, I'll get more into that maybe another time, but it's not really the purview of this podcast to really dive into that. I'm just trying to make a point here. The country is governed in part by that culture. It's influenced heavily by it, is basically what I'm saying. And then you, get, then you got, of course, Washington, D.C. over there on the East Coast, and then, of course, you got New York, where a lot of the news media is based out of. And these places all kind of have a singular personality to them, be it Washington, D.C., New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, so places like that have a singular personality. It's not the personality of the United States of America in the aggregate. Uh, think about what they call flyover country, which would be the places in the middle, right? These would be, this would be the, the area of the country that they call the extremities. And by the way, these people in the locus of uh, power and authority, so to speak, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, D.C., and, and elsewhere, they have begun to pay particular attention to the middle of the country uh, in, a f in a couple of ways. Both of them are very disturbing. I'm just putting that out there. I'm not going to get into details, but uh, maybe on a different podcast someday I'll talk about this. But what, what's going on is not, is not going to benefit us in the long term. But anyway, one could sincerely argue that the people on either end of the country have no idea what's going on in the middle or how life really exists in the middle, for the most part. And that's where we get to this, you know, lack of information, not being well understood, etc., etc. The middle of the country is not understood hardly at all by the people on either sides of the country, that is to say the east or west coast. It's not really understood at all. Now, there's exceptions. There's some people who understand it, but most people don't. I'll give you an example. And again, this is this is not partisan. This is just reality. This is the Constitution. This is the Founding Fathers. They, a lot of these people on the on the coasts, they don't understand how it's possible that a large number of people could walk around in the interior of the United States carrying a gun, and it's not like the a shootout at the OK Corral like every day in the street. It's just not like that. They don't understand that. They can't they can't contemplate that. And the reason why they don't is because they don't understand the middle of the country. But they're trying to govern it. I mean, the news media, in essence, is trying to govern it by way of telling us all what to do, uh, as is Hollywood, more or less, trying to trying to run the country by telling us all what to do. And then you've got the politicians in Washington, D.C. that are trying to, you know, run the entire country from just that, that town by way of legislation and so on and so forth. Instead of just leaving it to Nebraska to run Nebraska, because the people in Nebraska, they know who they are. They don't have an identity crisis, last I checked. So just let, let Nebraska be Nebraska, is what I'm saying. Because the people in government, the people in New York, and the people in L.A. or in Hollywood, I would argue, quote, 
could not well understand their affairs for want of full and true information, end quote. And by the way, my strongest advice for the people who do live in the middle of the country, don't listen to any of these parties that are trying to tell you what to do. Don't don't listen to Hollywood when they're trying to tell you what to do. Don't listen to the news media in New York when they're trying to tell you what to do or how to live your life. And don't listen to the people in Washington, D.C. when it comes to them telling you what to do and how to live your life. You need to take your destiny in your own hands. The destiny of the people of Nebraska should rest in the hands of the people of Nebraska. And you need to hold true to your identity to the extent you still have one. Otherwise, you're just going to be, you know, pulled around by the nose by these people in on, on one coast of the United States or the other. And that's not productive. That's not helpful. Now, again, when we talk about the general government, I didn't, I didn't dig too much into this at all. There is a slight difference here when it comes to the form of government here. And let me read this quote to you again. Quote, Affairs for want of full and true information had never been well governed but had been oppressed by bad governors on presumption that complaint was difficult to be made and supported against them at such a distance, end quote. So this is, a, to give you an idea what he's talking about, he's talking about like governors that would have been appointed by the king, or in the Roman Empire, some governor appointed by the senator, who knows what. Now today we don't have this problem exactly. Governors are elected by the people, thank goodness. It's the only thing that's saving the states, by the way. To the extent it's saving the states. Now, of course, we have the same old problem of partisan political ideology, which I absolutely hate. I mean, you all you can always count on a certain group of people to just go out and vote party line, no matter what. I mean, the, the governor could be some crooked, criminal, corrupt lunatic, and it doesn't matter as long as he's talking the party line. That's all that matters. Okay. But aside from the general stupidity of the electorate, governors are elected locally, so we don't really have that problem. But to, to, what, I'm, what I'm thinking here is... How how else is the population represented in the general government? And of course, that would typically be, or at least in the beginning, it was the House of Representatives, right? Okay. The problem is, and this is going to be threaded out in much more detail later on, well, at least in some detail anyway, those people are really, the, ge the general government has become so omnipresent in just about everything that happens in the United States of America, which which it was not supposed to be. These people in Congress are very busy because of it. Because they're, they're, they're all, the government's trying to handle, the federal government's trying to handle everything, basically. It's trying. It's failing miserably, but it's trying. Because general government can't micromanage everything and actually do well. The Soviet Union taught us that. And, and frankly, India, you know, from the time India was an independent country all the way up into the 90s, it demonstrated that with reckless abandon. I mean, they, they got their independence and then they proceeded to create this nightmare state that basically stunted their growth and held them back for, I don't know, what was it, four or five decades? If you ever want to study and exercise in ultimate stupidity as far as how, how to take advantage of your newly independent self as a country and how to govern properly— if you ever want to, if you ever want to, like, if you're, if you, if somebody's working on their doctoral thesis in political science or something, and you want an exercise in pure stupid, just study India after it declared its independence. It got away from the British Empire all the way up until, I don't know what was, probably, probably the early 90s, roughly, late 80s, early 90s, somewhere in that ballpark. But these people in the federal government are too busy. They're too busy for you. They're too busy to really do what they're supposed to do because they're, they're chasing their tail trying to do everything. To say that these people aren't terribly concerned about the Constitution is a bit of an understatement. 
And you can complain about it. You can complain about them not following the Constitution. You can complain about them neglecting their duties, like, I don't know, making a budget every year, which they seem to have a hard time actually pulling that off. But your complaint is more often than not going to fall on deaf ears because, quote, on presumption that complaint was difficult to be made and supported against them at such a distance, end quote. Because they're off in that city, Washington, D.C. They're not here, wherever here is to you. So we do have a problem with this. And that's why Congress has such a low approval rating. If you disagree with me, just look at the approval rating of Congress. Most of the time, it's in low double digits. Low double digits. I'm talking 12, 13, 14 percent, if not single digits. These are not popular people. They keep getting reelected for whatever reason. I mean, there's a case study, by the way, too. If, if, if anybody else out there is working on your doctoral thesis and you want a topic, if, 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 the, if, the, if the India thing is already taken, study that. How is it so many of those people get reelected time and time again, but the approval rating of Congress is so low? Here, I just pulled this up. And if this is to be believed, because some of you folks may not know what I'm talking about here. It's actually not quite as bad as I thought it was recently. But anyway, this comes from Gallup. This is an article posted on October 26, 2021. I can't read the title of the article because it's partisan. I can't read it. But what I will say is this, quote, Congress approval falls six points to 21% in October, end quote. And this is in 2021. Okay. And I also have this, uh, chart of congressional approval ratings, if this is accurate. We'll just assume this is accurate. This comes from thoughtco.com. I don't know exactly what this website's claim to fame is, but they have a uh, an article called, quote, Congress approval rating through history, end quote. Uh, this was published on March 18th, 2017. Uh, if you want the full list, go check out this, uh, this article, because I'll just go through the most recent ones. 2016, 18%. 2015, 13%. 2014, 16%. 2013, 12%. 2012, 18%. 2011, 11%. 2010, 13%. 2009, woo, 25%. Boy, that's getting up there. 2008, 20%. 2007, 22%. 2006, 21%. 2005, 29%. 2004, 41%. 2003, 43%. You get the idea. So again, if somebody's working on their doctoral thesis, try to figure out what the crap that's all about. Why do these people keep getting reelected if they're generally hated by most of uh, most of the country? I don't know. But their their approval rating is low, I, I would imagine in part because people don't feel like Congress is hearing their complaints. So why isn't Congress hearing their complaints? Quote, but had been oppressed by bad governors on presumption that complaint was difficult to be made and supported against them at such a distance, end quote. The distance being both geographic and just a physical distance in between you and that person, whoever that person is. And I, I can tell you that I, I've talked to, I've, I've called a lot of congressional representatives in my time, and I can tell you that their, their staff are some of the worst people on the planet, for lack of a better way of putting it. And not all of them, but a great many of their staff are some of the worst human beings on the planet. I'll stand by that statement until the day I die. I, I've, I've, um, I've, I've talked a lot with those people, and I can't stand them. Uh, I don't know how they hire for those jobs, but whatever they're doing, they're doing it wrong. And I don't know what, it, obviously, whatever's attracting those people to that kind of work, it attracts the most toxic, disgusting people that you could possibly find in the United States to do that job. There are a few good ones that sneak in. I've talked to them. I've, I've actually talked to them. But most of them, I don't, know, I don't know where these people were raised. I don't know who their parents were. But whoever they, whoever, wherever they were raised and whoever their parents were, it's hard for me to actually believe sometimes that these were Americans. So if anybody tries to convince me that we don't have a problem with what Dr. Franklin is talking about here today, I'm not going to I'm not going to buy it. I'm not buying what you're selling because I, I've lived it and I've seen it and I've heard it and I've and I've I've tried to fix this problem. It, it ain't going to be fixed. Not by me anyway. And what does Dr. Franklin say about, you know, the central government, the general government trying to run everything? Because he's talking about the Declaratory Act at some point here. He doesn't mention it by name. 
but he imp- he alludes to it. And the Declaratory Act, if you don't remember, was the statement that Parliament could bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever. In other words, we can do whatever we want. What does Dr. Franklin think about that? Quote, Whereby every province was well governed, being trusted in a great measure with the government of itself, and that hence had arisen such satisfaction in the subjects, and such encouragement to new settlements, that had it not been for the late wrong politics, which would have Parliament to become omnipotent, though it ought not to be so unless it could at the same time be omniscient, end quote. So, again, I didn't really stop and define these previously, but omnipotent basically means all-powerful. Omniscient means all-knowing. So what he's saying here is that if the general government, or in his time the parliament and the king, if they, if they were to be omnipotent, that is to say all-powerful, they would have to be all-knowing at the same time. Otherwise, they're just blindly doing stuff without knowing what's going on, as he was describing previously, that uh, the country and its extremities are not well-known by the seat of power. They're, not, they're just not. And the elected representatives that are supposed to, like, for example, in the case of the United States, go to Washington, D.C. and inform the general government what the local population is really all about, really all they're there to do is rep- represent the people who have the most money. Whoever's writing them checks, if you can't write the government, uh, if you can't write your elected representative a check, they're not going to represent you. It may seem like they are, but they're not. Now, there's a few exceptions to that. I mean, if they know that they're going to make you ten kinds of angry, like shaking a can of rocks next to a beehive, they're probably not going to go down that road. But if they can sneak something past you, something that's basically going to harm you, because somebody who wrote them a check wants them to do it, they're going to do it. And they're not terribly concerned about representing most of the local population there, or are trying to drag the government kicking and screaming towards understanding what the local folks need. They don't care. It's all—it's mostly about what the money interests need, what they want. That's pretty much what it's all about. So you can't have a general government that's trying to run all things because they can't be all-knowing. Even if those people were doing their job up there, they still would not be all-knowing. It's just impossible. They spend too much time out of the state. They don't spend enough time here. They don't spend enough time in the community. They just don't. And when they are here, they're usually just passing through, and then they go back to their little enclave, wherever that is. There's plenty of elected representatives that live in a million-dollar house or better, but their constituents don't. They don't live amongst the constituents most of the time. Not really. So to be all-powerful in government, you'd have to be all-knowing. They're not. That's why, again, the Founding Fathers set the country up to be local, to run, run by local governments, and for the states to have so much authority. Because government cannot be all-knowing, and it should not be all-powerful. That's just the way it is. So if, you, if, you, if you're one of those folks out there who thinks that the federal everything should be a federal issue, the federal government should just run everything, run everything, oh by gosh, just send it up to the federal government. No, and that may mean that some states look very, very different than other states, but that's perfectly fine. Because, quite frankly, maybe the people in New York don't want to live like the people in Nebraska live. They can't stand the way the people in Nebraska live. They can't, they can't even possibly imagine living like that. That's fine. New York, you do you. You do what you do, and let Nebraska do what it does. And quit trying to mess with that. It's those, uh, this is, again, getting back to those individual personalities within the states, which, again, are supposed to be free and independent states. It's a reason why they're called states, not provinces, by the way. You ever notice that? And Dr. Franklin says that people are going to be happier if they're run by their local government instead of, instead of the distant government. He says it right here. And I quote, But that this empire had happily found and long been in the practice of a method whereby every province was well-governed, 
being trusted in a great measure with the government of itself, and that hence had arisen such satisfaction in the subjects, and such encouragement to new settlements. End quote. Satisfaction of the subjects. In other words, they were happy. They were happy they were governed by themselves. They could address their own concerns locally. If you ever wonder why people are so angry in this country... Why are people so angry? What is it with this new misery that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast? Where does that come from? It comes from a few places. Not just this problem, but this is one of them. If you wonder why this country tears itself apart every four years to try to elect some nutbag to be president of the United States, and and again, for all those people new to the podcast, perhaps, no, I'm not talking about the current president. I'm not talking about the former president. I'm not talking about any specific president. I just have this personal belief that the vast majority of the people who get elected to that office are halfway to crazy, at least. And they don't particularly pay attention to what the job requires them to do. But that, that's a that's a debate for another time. I'm not going to get too much into that. But the country tears itself apart every four years, and we think this is a good idea. And part of the reason why we do that, why does the country get so animated and worked up and angry or uh, it, filled with emotion over the election of this, semi, this, what was supposed to be a largely inconsequential office, the office of the president? Why does the country get so worked up about it? Why does it tear itself apart doing this? And the answer is, is because that nutbag, more often than not, is trying to run the entire country and micromanage the crap out of it. So the election of that nutbag affects everybody in very personal ways, in very intimate ways, on a micro level. And it shouldn't. We're supposed to be run, the, the states are supposed to be run locally. Now, I can understand why electing the governor would cause a lot of animosity or contention within a state, potentially. But we shouldn't be tearing the country apart. Other than just a relatively few issues, the election of a president of the United States should be a, a big nothing issue, because he's not supposed to be doing very much. But since we've gotten away from running everything locally, as Dr. Franklin is describing here, this country is angry most of the time. One half or the other, or both. Because, you know, one half of the country is trying to force the other half of the country how to live. And they're doing it through the office of the president and the Congress, for that matter. That's not the way it's supposed to be. You know, you, you, people, you people in Idaho or Nebraska or New Mexico or wherever, don't be trying to force other people how to live. And don't think you have an opinion about how the rest of us live, because you don't. We don't care what you think. I don't, frankly, give a crap what you think, as far as what you think about how I should live. But your elected representatives, in some cases, are out of control because they're not reading the letters from our founding fathers. They don't understand what Dr. Franklin was talking about here. Not all of them, but some of them are out of control. You wonder why this, this system seems broken? You wonder why, you know, the Constitution seems to be just limping along kind of slowly? It's because we're not reading the instruction manual. We don't know how to work this machine. It's got a lot of levers, and it's got a lot of gears and wheels, and we're just, we're not, we're not turning the right wheels, and we're not pulling the right levers. Because, to, be, to put it bluntly, the American population is stupid on this issue because they haven't read the manual, because it's not required reading in school. The parents are not require, requiring their children to read it or listen to this podcast, one of the two, whichever one you think is easier. If you think it's easier to spend 10, 15 years of your life digging up these letters and sharing them with your children, you can, or you can send them to this podcast, and I'll do the work for you. There's no excuse anymore to not do this. There was an excuse about a year and a few months ago to not dig up these letters because it takes too much time. But now there's no excuse. There isn't a single American within the sound of my voice or with the potential of being within the sound of my voice who has any excuse of not teaching this to their children. The excuses are now gone. I have removed them for you. I did that. And I did it because I felt like this would be a valuable addition to what the young people in the United States need to be learning, to get them out of the uh, the new misery, 
that I, uh, that I have heard so many people, so many learned individuals describe over the last few years. Now, how important is all this to understand where we come from and where we're going? I heard a wise man say one time, There are laws that enslave men, and there are laws that set them free. Laws are not always good things. And frankly speaking, I don't think most Americans understand the difference. I don't think most Americans understand the difference between laws that set men free and laws that enslave them. I mean, how do you think people walk themselves into slavery over and over again? How is it the people of Russia have never really, really been able to escape slavery? From the time that they were serfs under the czars, the Romanovs, to the time that they were basically slaves under the Soviet Union, the Politburo, the uh, political apparatchiks, and today. Now, it's not as bad today as it used to be, I can tell you that much right now, but it, they're still kind of trapped in this circle of slavery, as I would describe it. They've had, they've had multiple opportunities to get out. They, they can't seem to pull it off. Because sometimes, again, I may have said this before, and I'll probably say it again, to somebody who doesn't really know what they're doing, a mirage looks just as real to them as, as something that is actually physically there. That's what happens when you're uneducated about these issues, and you do not understand what the difference is between laws that enslave men and the laws that set them free. The Bill of Rights was a set of laws that set men free. When you have the freedom of speech, you have the freedom of thought. Without the freedom of speech, you don't really have the freedom of thought, because so much of what we think is linked to what we say, and our ability to engage in intellectual discourse with the people around us and in the public. And the United States is slowly taking that away, because people don't understand that there are some laws that enslave men and some that set them free. Why do you think the Second Amendment is so contentious? Why do you think that is so hotly contested? Because there is a group of people in this country who have no idea what they're doing, and they don't understand how slavery gets started. They don't understand how, the, how those wheels get set in motion. They don't understand about, they don't understand the promises of the tyrant, of the despot. You know, the, the kings and the warlords and the czars and the emperors from times past, they, they would often say things like, I will take care of you. Like a Caesar of Rome, for example. I am a great general. I will take care of you. I will protect you. Just give me all your freedom. Give me all your freedom and I will protect you. They'll protect you until they can't or until they decide to take all that power that you gave them and they, they turn it against you. They level those guns right at your face and they open fire, like what happened on April 19th of 1775. You must teach your children and you must teach your friends, your family, what the difference is between laws that enslave men and laws that set them free. How do you recognize that? How do you understand it? Without the instruction manual to the Constitution of the United States of America, it gets really hard to tell the difference. Because without the, without the, without the instruction manual, the Constitution doesn't really have any context. The Declaration of Independence does because the context is written into it. But it can be ambiguous if you don't pay attention and you don't focus, like that line about free and independent states. You, people just read right over that, and they don't understand that it's free and independent states, plural, instead of a free and independent state singular. Your state, whichever one you live in, is supposed to be a free and independent state. Free and independent. And the reason for that was so that, is it, so that it could stand as a bulwark against any attempts to enslave the people contained within. That was the intention. Now, I realize that didn't work out in some states for, for a while, but it did eventually. We fixed that problem. Again, we, we, did, it, we did it by standing atop the bodies of 700,000 dead. That's how that happened. That's a high price. That's uh, yet another Samuel Adams reference to the mangled bodies of our countrymen. But you get the idea. So I'll just, I'll just end with that. This whole structure of government that we have is all tied up in what Dr. Franklin was writing about in that letter. A, a relatively weak central government, for the most part, except, except in those cases where it is the law of the land. That is to say, those, those things specifically written into the Constitution. That is the law of the land. That is the supreme law. 
to the extent that it's in there, but it has to be written in there, not made up, not conjecture, not inferred, not guesswork. It has to be actually written in there. But other than that, local governments, because Dr. Franklin says that's the better way to go. You're going to be happier if you do it that way. That's what he says. Your neighbors will be happier. 330 million Americans, it's, 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 real, it's, it's real easy to make everybody a little bit happier than we are right now. It's real easy. Just a little bit. Well, that won't fix every problem, but it'll fix this one. Just read the instructions. Start using this machine the way it was intended, and the problem is solved. Sounds easy, right? The problem is you got to get 330 million people to go along with it, or at least a lot of them. And that's apparently a tall order. But I will tell you what will help with that. Encourage everybody you know to study this material. And again, if it's easier, and it is, listen to this podcast, because I do this work for you. You can listen to this on the ride to work, and you can tell your friends or your family or your kids or whatever, hey, listen to this on the ride to work. Listen to it, listen to it on the bus ride to school. It gets real easy to listen to this stuff. Like I said, I've, I've taken all of the barriers away. The instruction manual is now right there, ready to go at your fingertips. And Dr. Franklin is waiting. And Samuel Adams is waiting. He's waiting for you. And he's waiting for that next person that finds the podcast. He's just waiting. And together, all of us, me, you, Samuel Adams and Dr. Franklin and the rest of them, will begin to reintroduce this country to the instruction manual for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States of America. And that is a good thing. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. It's really just me expanding again on, on what we talked about in the previous episode and adding that little tidbit about uh, understanding the difference between laws that enslave men and laws that set them free. And I'll give you a little hint, by the way, in case you're curious. There's a reason why, you know, I, I often say, I don't, I don't know if I often say, I've said it before, nobody has the right to happiness. Nobody has the right in this country to be happy. Because here's the reason why, and this is the reason why it's called, you have the right to pursue happiness, but you do not have the right to be happy. And you need to make sure and tell your children this, by the way. Otherwise, they're going to be sadly misguided in life, and they're going to cause a lot of problems for themselves and everybody else around them. And I've, if I've said it before, I'll say it again. Don't ever tell your children you just want them to be happy. Don't ever tell them that. For God's sakes, if you don't ever listen to a single other thing I tell you, don't ever, ever tell your children you just want them to be happy. Because sometimes our responsibilities that we have to do make us very unhappy, and we have to go do them. And if somebody thinks, well, I'm just supposed to be happy because my, my, my parents told me I was, they just wanted me to be happy, they're not going to do it. But anyway, the reason why it's so important to understand that we don't have the right to happiness is because if you have the right to happiness, then you have the right to everything that makes you happy. Do you get it? Do you, do you see the problem with that? If you have the right to be happy, then that means that you have the right to everything that makes you happy. And that my friends, is one of the most dangerous concepts ever to be introduced into government in the history of the world. Because that gives the government the power and authority to take whatever they want, whenever they want, from whoever they want, and give it to whoever they want to make them happy. That's why the Bill of Rights isn't written that way. It's written in such a way that it says the government cannot do this. The government cannot do that shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion, shall not be infringed, no excessive fines or penalties. There's a reason why it's written that way, ladies and gentlemen, and it's important that everybody understand that, because that is one of the important keys in being able to identify laws that enslave men and laws that set them free. So I hope that that was a good discussion for you. I, I believe it was, for me, certainly, and uh, good advice from Dr. Franklin, for sure. On the next episode of the podcast, we will be back into the letters again. And so I hope you will join me on that episode, just as you joined me on this one, and the previous one, hopefully. And if you haven't listened to the previous one yet, go ahead and go on back into the library and listen to that one. I think it was a good discussion from Dr. Franklin. I really do. We're going to soon be done with Dr. Franklin's letters from 1774 to 1775. we got a little bit left to go. And then I believe 
I believe I'm probably going to do Samuel Adams next. We're going to cover some of the early Samuel Adams stuff. It's about time I finally brought on the big guns of the American Revolution, as I like to say. I like Samuel Adams. I think he was a, I think he was a genuinely a good guy. So I hope you'll join me on the next episode of the podcast. And with all of that said, this is Roman signing off. Thank you.